Guess who's back? Woo, Charlene. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome back to All Shades of Black Podcast. It's me, Charlene. And Bianca. And we're kicking it off another week of All Shades of Black Podcast. I'm back in Texas. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember our first episode. Me and Bianca were together in California, but back in Texas, holding it down. Um, Bianca did such an amazing job holding it down the past two episodes. Round of applause for that, girl. Killing it. That first, second episode. Oh, my gosh. The whole time I was just tapping my fingers. It was so no. good. Yes. No. It's such a good part about communities of healing. Like, we've been had these. Like, we've had communities of healing from the beginning. It's not just, like, a white man's made construct. Like, that resonated with me so, so much. Mm. So, thank you for that. Yeah, girl. That's what you been up to these past couple weeks? You know, just hanging in, trying to stay centered, trying to stay grounded with everything going on. Yeah, just kind of trying to just taking it one day at a time. How about you? What's going I feel on? you, girl. I feel you, girl. Um, the most exciting thing that's happened in my life is my twist out. I was so excited. Oh. Okay. I used to I've been trying to perfect this twist out, and it occurred to me, because it kept getting frizzy so fast. I'm like, why is my twist out only lasting, like, or actually the twist, not the out part, just the twist. Like, why is it only lasting a couple days? And then I discovered gel, like, the the beauty of gel. You know why? Sometimes it be the thing that's right in front of your face. Exactly. I was like, why have I not been doing this the whole time, duh? So now I finally untwisted it, and I'm so excited. I'm about to makes me want to do my hair more often yeah you know what people may i don't know if people laugh but if you natural if you are natural you know that twist out is hit or miss so if you get a good yes. twist out and it lasts then that mm-hmm. is definitely something mm-hmm. triumphant <laughs> yes my next mountain i'm trying to climb is figuring out how to lay on it without it getting all messed up oh yeah, I don't know. For some reason, I sleep crazy and my twists come out crooked. I'm like, why can't it just be straight? So I'm going to have to figure that out. Hmm. Do you not have a silk scarf? <laughs> I do, but I don't know. I think it's just the way I lay. I don't know, but like in the morning, it's it's a struggle. It takes like half a day for it to like lay flat. Hmm. Anyways, I'll look up some YouTube videos, y'all. You can email me if you have any suggestions or recommendations, because clearly I'm on the struggle bus. <laughs> you said you're on the struggle bus. Struggle bus. Girl, at least you're not driving the struggle bus. You know what I mean? You can get off the <laughs> 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 uh, Thanks a lot for that. That's your triumph from the past past couple weeks, getting that twist out together. We celebrate with you, Charlene. Way to go. Yes, ma'am. Yes. We're going to um, get back to our usual functioning of episodes. I know that we started giving a little bit of foundation about mental health in the Black community a couple weeks ago. We veered off a little bit last week because I had some things that I wanted to share, reflections I wanted to share in regards to what's happening currently in our community, in our world. Uh, But today we're going to get back on with our series about the foundations of mental health in the Black community. We'll go ahead and jump into our topic today. What we're talking about today is 
transgenerational trauma. So transgenerational trauma may be a term that some of you have heard but may not fully be aware of, and some people may not have heard it at all. Um, so transgenerational trauma uh, refers to how the effects of trauma have been passed down throughout the generations. So a lot of research has been done um, that I've seen. Most of it has either been done in regards to descendants of Holocaust survivors or people who are in uh, who are indigenous or First Nation communities, also known as Native Americans, um, who have experienced symptoms of trauma that's been passed down throughout the generations. Of course, for us in the Black community, um, there may be some people who are uh, affiliated with those particular demographics, but there's specific research set apart for Black Americans, people who are descendants of enslaved Africans um, in the United States in regards to transgenerational trauma, and that's what we will be focused on here today. But just to give you a little background, so just in general, trauma itself um, is an event or an experience that affects someone that is sad, that is uh, terrifying, that kind of creates a pivotal point in someone's life. That's, the, that's Bianca's definition of trauma. Um, a lot of people have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, a.k.a. PTSD. A lot of times that's referred to, that's in regards to people who are um, veterans, those who have seen combat, or those who have been in traumatic um, situations like, uh, like natural disasters, such as Hurricane Katrina, or those who are, have been refugees or victims of uh, man-made disasters like genocide and war. But it doesn't have to just be people who have experienced it firsthand. The trauma can also impact people who um, hear about it. That's called vicarious trauma, um, how people are affected by just hearing about a loved one or hearing, hearing about somebody that they know who experienced a horrific event. But by definition, PTSD is a disorder that some people develop after experiencing a scary, dangerous, or shocking event that creates certain symptoms. And for people to meet the criteria of PTSD, those symptoms such as hypervigilance, which basically basically means someone's looking over their shoulder all the time or they're, they're um, super aware of their environment, being on edge, people who may have a negative, who have negative self-thoughts or thoughts of, uh, negative thoughts of the world, um, have distorted feelings of blame or guilt. Um, those are just some of the symptoms, but those who experience some of those symptoms for a certain period of time may be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's in general. As it applies to the Black American community in regards to transgenerational trauma, there's a, a term called post-traumatic slave syndrome, which was a term coined by Dr. Joy DeGruy, fabulous, amazing researcher, speaker. She coined that term in regards to how descendants of enslaved Africans are still impacted by the trauma that our ancestors experienced um, during the transatlantic slave and also during the uh, institution of enslavement. Uh, we never received treatment, proper treatment for that. There was never any sort of 
collective healing practices necessarily implemented to process that trauma or to um, work through that trauma. In fact, it became compounded by systemic racism and injustices. And so there are certain social social behaviors, certain behavioral patterns that we developed um, from that time, things that were learned practices. In addition to, um, there has been research additionally to suggest that uh, trauma is passed down genetically as well, the impact of trauma is passed down genetically. So you, when you look at all of those ingredients collectively, and then you reflect on how our current stances in America as Black people, a lot of things come to light in terms of certain experiences that we have that reflect symptoms of trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder. But in this case, it's called post-traumatic slave syndrome. Okay, so what we're going to attempt to do today is give a little reflection on how some of the behaviors and patterns that we see in our community today um, are in relation to the trauma that our ancestors experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of um, what you were saying, what Dr. DeGruy pointed out, um, like the behaviors that kind of demonstrate the trauma that we as a community still experience are what she refers to as vacant esteem, which is basically the state of believing that we as a people um, are undervalued or have little or no worth, which is fed to us through society, our community, and even within our own family sphere. Um, Another behavior that she noted in the African-American community is what she terms ever-present anger, which is when, which is a response when, as a people group, we consistently are unable to attain certain goals or things in society, whether it's rights, privileges, um, acknowledgement, respect, which obviously can, especially over time, build up and lead to <clears throat> this underlying anger that's always present. And Reading that, it reminded me of the quote by James Baldwin, which says, to be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage, because how can you not when you're constantly aware of all the things that white people or the white community is not allowing you to achieve or even the respect of being seen as a mm. equal human being? Mm. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Mm. And then the last behavior that she notes that's uh, like a symptom of post-traumatic slave syndrome is something called racist socialization. Mm. So this is basically like what, as I understood it, um, internalized racism. So through the centuries of slavery and the decades of institutionalized oppression that followed, many black people have been socialized to be something akin to white races, according to Dr. DeGruy. So this can be like as a result of adapting the slave master's quote-unquote value system because we were not immune to taking on some of their value systems and beliefs. That's a psychological phenomenon that is known for people who are um, captured. Like Stockholm Syndrome, yes, when you like start to identify with your captor. Um, Mm. So mm-hmm. as slaves, like, we're not immune to that. Like, we can, on some level, take on the value system of um, our master or the people that have enslaved us. So that can show up in 
associating whiteness as superior um, mm. and black people being socialized to see things through the white lens and adopting their standards, including like beauty standards um, and cultural standards. Right. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the doll study that was actually conducted by two black psychologists in the 30s and 40s um, where black and white children were presented with black and white dolls um, or different dolls with different skin complexions and they were asked to choose one that was the best or the prettiest or different associations and both the white and black children um, saw the white doll as better or prettier than the black doll. Mm -hmm. So just ways that as a group we have, well, in that time period at least, had a sense of internalized racism. There have been studies since then that have shown that that, that happens less, but it's still a representation of, of how as black people we can take on the standards of our of our oppressors. Yeah. And a lot of that is social conditioning, what has been um, not social, maybe social, but psychologically conditioned as well to believe that there's a certain, that a certain feature or a certain way of looking is, is beautiful. But all of that, I think about that, and all of that is really rooted in white supremacy um, and elevating whiteness as a form of dominance. As a, as a tactic to dominate and to conquer. Obviously, we know that's not something that's limited to the United States. Colonization happens all around the world. So a lot of the remnants of that or a lot of the, um, a lot of the effects of that is seen globally. So when we look at the Black community um, and how we're impacted by that, it's not just us coming up with that in our minds, but to have years of not being celebrated, years of being told that you're not good enough, you're not intellectual enough, years of being told you're not human, followed by your humanity is not valuable, followed by the way that you appear is not valuable or is not desirable. That's something that's, that's been told directly, but then again, it's reinforced if we look through, look at media um, what's mm -hmm. most highlighted, what certain features are highlighted. For years, whiteness has been celebrated as the standard of beauty. And even now, there's something, you know, that there's been a lot of progress on. But when we look at um, even now some of the standards of beauty and what's put out there as what's acceptable, it's going to be things that are more stereotypically European features or characteristics. Um, even though a lot of people are trying to take on certain characteristics that are um, uh, typically affiliated with blackness, um, they just don't want to have it on black people. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I mean, it runs deep. That that setup, that psychological manipulation and setup for dominance, transcends just uh, systemic. Um, structure in terms of, uh, you know, government and legislation that transcends and goes into how we perceive ourselves, mm -hmm. how we see others, how we engage with each other um, or disengage with each other. Uh, this is years of psychological abuse and mm -hmm. ingraining an ideology mm -hmm. that we're not good enough, that we're not sufficient enough, 
just in, mm-hmm. in nature by who we are. Mm-hmm. Our existence is, is not valuable. And, of course, mm-hmm. we see that that's not just about, you know, appearance. That's not just an aesthetic thing, but a humanity thing. And we see that now really on the forefront with um, what we've known in the black community already with the Black Lives Matter movement, but a lot of other people are jumping, are getting put on game finally to mm-hmm. at least have a glimpse of understanding of what, what we are experiencing in terms of how the world dehumanizes us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then in turn, how we see ourselves and, I'm just keep going back to Dr. DeGruy's vacant self-esteem or vacant esteem um, and wondering like how that shows up when, how as a people we treat ourselves when if at times some of us don't value or don't see value in ourselves and how that can show up in depression and anxiety and so many other symptoms and even emotionally one of the things that Dr. DeGru talks about is family and parenting. And one way that I see some symptoms passed down generationally is through how we handle emotions, like how we teach mm. each other to handle emotions. Um, she points out how as black families, we've kind of been conditioned to keep harder reins on our kids and how they act, especially in public. Um, but even how we express things like anger or negative emotions. Um, In one study that I was reading, they compared how black mothers um, react to their kids displaying negative emotions compared to white mothers. And Mm. um, black mothers were less supportive to the children's negative emotions than white moms um, and and less supportive of the children's anger which is it fits with what I've seen and it's just sad how like as a black as a black community we aren't allowed even like we're taught within our own community like suppress our own emotions because they could be mm. interpreted as more aggressive or mm. um negative as more negatively than if like a white kid were to express the exact same thing. Mm. Yeah. Have you experienced yeah. that for yourself where you feel like you have to withhold or restrain certain emotions or expressing certain emotions so you're not perceived as aggressive? Um, um, I guess the way that I've seen it show up is, like, lack of emotional expression mm, or within my own family. Like, we're... Um, we're contained like my the way I grew up in my family is like we it's not okay to be angry or like we have we try to suppress our anger like mm. and if you do then it's like scary almost like it's not it's not okay um, mm. and so I take that into with me into different spaces I'm in where I don't know that I like I've ever been called the angry black woman or, or I can't remember people like looking at me crazy if I go off or something. Mm. Um, but it's just something that like I noticed not verbally like discussed, but just as a family, the way that we operated was like, we don't, we don't, negative emotions aren't discussed or addressed. Hmm. You just kind of have to push through. Yeah, just deal with it. 
Mm-hmm. And then when we think about, like, what it was like in slavery, like, where, what space do you have to be angry with your master or to be able to express that? Like, it makes sense that that's a learned behavioral pattern that you pass down yeah. as a parent to your children, generation to generation, where it's like, if you express anger toward your white master, that you could get killed. Because literally, yeah. they had the right to kill their property, their slaves. And even outside of slavery, as we've been seeing within the police, it's like, if we appear as threatening, they have the right to kill us. And so it makes sense that through generations, we've been taught to suppress our any negative emotions as much as possible for survival. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I think about what message that sends, too, because to be angry or to be happy or to experience sadness, those all describe basic human emotions. So if you think about how enslaved Africans were, our ancestors were not considered human, that just affirms in its own way that you don't have humanity or you're not human enough to be able to have those emotions or express those emotions. And so it kind of reiterates that idea that we're not human. Um, that even that even connects with this idea of black people being strong, which we are, we're resilient. But I think that when when it's put into a framework of when you think about the research history with uh, the medical field, it thinks that we're not susceptible to pain. That somehow we don't. Um, that we don't feel pain or we have a higher tolerance of pain that somehow strips mm. us of our humanity again. Mm-hmm. So it's like all of those things paired together has not only instilled in, in a lot of us, but instilled in people who are not, who aren't black, that black people mm-hmm. somehow are super, it's weird. It's like you're superhuman, but you're subhuman. Like you're not human mm-hmm. enough, but you're, you're, you're superhuman. So you're able to tolerate, more pain, in a sense. It's it's kind of a conflicting message. But by saying that you need to repress your emotions is saying that you're not valuable enough to express your humanity. Mm-hmm. I know that I've experienced that a lot. Um, I am still having to train myself not to be in that mindset of repressing negative emotions, Um because most of my life has been navigating spaces that are not black. Um, in most cases, they're predominantly white or white adjacent, meaning people who still benefit from white privilege or white whiteness, um, even if they don't identify as being white. Anyway, so I realized that I've had to, especially in the professional world, you know, being in higher education and being in a, a professional it's like you have to adapt so that you can, one, have social survival, but also not have your employment put at risk mm-hmm. or speaking up about certain things. Even if you speak about up about certain things in a way that is respectful, quote-unquote respectful and professional, you'll still be deemed as being aggressive just by being black, like because of your appearance, because of your blackness, you're automatically considered to be a political statement. Or, and if you're natural, my goodness, 
if you natural hair. <laughs> people, I'm serious. Like, yeah, I've worn my hair natural. I've worn my hair straight. People respond to you differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's seen as, it's paired as being aggressive. So it's just like, even now, that message is being affirmed and reiterated that, okay, we accept you as human, but you're not equal. Um, mm-hmm. And you're not human enough. You're not human enough to be tolerated as someone to have a human reaction to something mm-hmm. and your yeah. human reaction makes me uncomfortable it's like yeah. everything is is magnified or um that's not the word i want to use but that's basically what i what i mean is um is magnified it's it's emphasized because you're expressing an emotion so <laughs> yeah yeah that reminds me of um in ibram kennedy's book how to be an anti-racist he tells a story about how when he was in elementary school, I forget how old he was, how he got upset because he noticed his teacher was ignoring one of the black students in class when she, like, raised her hand. Um, and it's a girl who, like, never raises raises her hand. She's super quiet and super, like, timid. And so the one time she raises her hand, the teacher looks at her and ignores her and doesn't call on her. And he got so upset that he, like, when they went to some, like, uh auditorium or something he refuses to leave he's like taking a stance but she's just like you need to leave right now he's like no and he talks about how like at no point did the teacher like take that as a cue for like oh maybe he's upset he never acts like this like what's going on like concern and how he wonders like if this was a white student I wonder if they would have interpreted his defiant behavior as like something like obviously there's something beneath it if they would have showed more concern um and it it just you saying all that reminded me of that about how differently people interpret the same emotional expression in in black people versus white people because it's Mm -hmm. crazy because it's Mm -hmm. so true like anger means something like there's something beneath anger why is that person angry but a lot of time we don't get that same benefit of the doubt yeah i mean it's it's a stark contrast when you think about how police enforcement handles certain situations of violence. I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence, even in the conviction of certain uh, crimes, same crime, different different um, penalties, different consequences, mm-hmm. depending on if you're black or if you're not black, um, mm-hmm. or if you're you're a person of color or if you're white. Man, I just think about I think about Elijah McClain, I think about George mm-hmm. Floyd, I think about mm-hmm. Michael Brown, Philando Castell. I think about all of these people who all of these uh, Breonna Taylor, like black men and women who mm-hmm. are automatically seen as a threat just by breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elijah McClain wasn't doing anything but walking home, but because somebody thought he was threatening. He was a threat. He wasn't literally was doing nothing but walking. Ahmaud Aubrey running. People see our blackness as a threat to them. And when you have a law, someone who is a law, a part of law enforcement, doing that, having that perception, who who takes the liberty to attack a black person for being human, and walking or running or not even resisting, but seeing their blackness as a threat and responding to that versus having 
someone who's white actually commit a horrendous crime and be calmly evacuated from the scene. Mm. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. you can't, there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is sure what, what's that? I said, no, there really isn't. Yeah, there's there's no denying that there's a difference there. And, and so I say that to say that transgenerational trauma, yes, in reference to the Black community, Black American community, it does show up in our behaviors. It does show up in our mindset. I think it's something to note as well that that trauma is also influenced or impacts white, white folks and those who aren't Black because of the messages yeah. that are transferred. Um, transgenerationally to dehumanize or demean black bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows up in in crazy ways. Like the rate of suicide among young black men is increasing significantly. Whereas like before it always used to be the rate of suicide with among white individuals was higher than black people. But for some reason, in this one subsection, the rate of suicide is going up, which I don't think is coincidental. Um, Mm. There's, you can only take so much for so long before it starts to show up. Yeah. Well, we'll have to talk about, you know, suicide in more depth, but I I think that's a whole nother conversation, but Mm -hmm. growing up with the idea that, that black people don't don't complete suicide. That was something that I, that was a message I grew up with because it wasn't something that we saw and there would be comments made that that's not, that's not really a black person thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that lends to the narrative that black people, again, do not have, that we're able to carry a certain amount of trauma without. Yeah, had. right. Exactly. <laughs> that we're able to carry pain in a way that other people aren't. I think there is a part of me, because we're still here and we've had so many things come against us, um, like it's, it's almost inconceivable, the layers of, of attack that we receive as a people on a daily basis. We're not immune to pain. Um, I think maybe in a lot of ways we've learned to adapt to it. And some people, I mean, a lot of us have normalized the pain that we experience to the point where we may not even realize the stress that we have because of it, but it still has an impact on us. And I think we're entering into a time now, especially with these new generations, there's so much new, like with technology and um, a greater amount of globalization, more awareness of certain social injustices, access to certain types of trauma. Um, So we have vicarious trauma on top of our own uh, by seeing, you know, these videos and, and a lot of other factors. I think that's a, that's a new level of trauma that the new generations may have to navigate um, unless there's some immediate, you know, unless there's some change, really some massive change that happens in our social constructs and our legislation and everything else that, that impacts our stress. But that's why it's so important for us to, to acknowledge our need for mental health assistance as a community. And mm-hmm. to get to get good mental health care, not just any mental health care, but mental health care that's socially conscious, mental health care that is really going to uh, um, 
to help us heal the way that we need mm-hmm. to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we do not acknowledge, um, if we fail to name and acknowledge the pain that we're experiencing, how are we going to be able to heal from something we don't know is there? That's an ailment. So that's another plug why it's important. I'm, I'm happy to hear uh more black people, especially black celebrities who are pushing for it, for there to be more mental health services for the black community. Um, we just need, I, I seriously believe that the more mental health professionals we have who are from the community, um, the more help and assistance we're going to get because, uh, to be honest, I, not a lot of people, even if they're a person of color, they may not, they may not be able to understand or have the motivation to help. Not saying everybody, because there are people who are willing to help and are motivated, but I'm just going to speak from my personal experience. Sometimes, you know, people want to help out their own community. Right. Uh, which makes sense, but, I mean, there's not a whole lot of black folks who are in the mental health field, so it's important that we get, you know, clinicians who are already here um, to the point where they're, they're able to have a, a, a certain level of consciousness a necessary level of consciousness to be able to support the healing of black black people. Amen, amen. <laughs> but um, yeah. So it's all of that to say that you know that that trauma is real. It's not in our head. Um, don't don't let anybody gaslight you into thinking that your experience of of being oppressed or trauma, no matter how how big or perceptual, perceptually big or how perceptually small it is, we're still impacted. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who was raised necessarily in an urban community or in the quote-unquote hood. I, you know, I haven't seen, like, a loved one who was shot and killed. I haven't been a part of a drive-by. But that you don't need to have that black, that black experience to experience trauma. Um, I think we need to shift the narrative of black folks to say that you can have different black experiences and still experience, be a part of having that stress. Mm-hmm. I just have one woman, she was a white lady, um, uh, who, you know, we were in a conversation. I had just met her. Um, actually, she was, she was in a, it was a shared ride situation. I was in a lift. And she made the comment, just randomly asked me if I experienced, do I experience racism in L.A.? <laughs> I said, I, I mean, yes. Then she wanted me to, <laughs> I said, absolutely. She, then she wanted me to name or to give examples. I said, well, racism isn't an isolated, isn't necessarily an isolated event or a series of isolated events. Side note, I was very uncomfortable with this conversation, <laughs> but I was stuck. I had nowhere to go. I was in her car. Um, <laughs> and um, But one comment she made that really stood out to me is that she said, because she had, uh, we had already been, you know, talking. She, she knew I had a master's degree, higher level education and all of that and some other parts of my background. And she pointed at that and said, well, how can you – you're, you have a master's degree, you've accomplished this, this, and the third. How, and she, the way she asked it was basically how, how can you experience racism? Shouldn't you be immune to it? Or not immune hmm. to it. Shouldn't you be someone who doesn't experience that because of your, I guess, her my presumed socioeconomic background? She don't know mm-hmm. anything about my paycheck. I don't know if that was in her mind. <laughs> but, 
But I guess you thought if you have a higher level of education, somehow you are able to avoid racial racism and, and discrimination. <laughs> are you kidding me? I said people don't see my degree. Right. And even, people, and even on my job, even on past jobs where I have a resume, that does not make me exempt from experiencing racism. So I think that's something that needs to be needs to be addressed as well. No matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your education level is, no one is exempt. Contrary to what O.J. Simpson may believe, no one is exempt from racism. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how high of a level of of accomplishment you make. Uh, LeBron James, arguably one of the best players in, in history. I said arguably, don't come at me. <laughs> but it, of our time, one of the greatest players of our time at the very least, still experienced hate crimes mm-hmm. and racism publicly. So, you know, this whole idea that people are exempt because they're not necessarily from, you know, the projects or from, um, you know, certain urban settings. Not everybody, like we said in the beginning, we are not a community that is that is that homogenous where we all have one experience. Yes, there are shared, shared traits and there are shared experiences because we live in America as black people. But we have we have our own unique stories and narratives that I think need to be honored and celebrated and acknowledged that even if we haven't been from from uh, a neighborhood that do experience violence, that doesn't mean that we are exempt from from having impact of trauma. Right. Right. In our own it just might look differently. Right. And yeah, I, yes, definitely. I think across the board, regardless of your SES status, you can still experience racism. And then on top of that, imagine the compounding effects of living in uh, poverty or living in, or your status being low SES. The compounding stressors surrounding that and the impact on mental health too, it, it, it can exacerbate um, the mental health impact considerably. Because mm-hmm. we know that um, um, violence is can be associated with poverty, regardless of your racial background. Exactly. Like across races, um, when you don't have money to feed your family, like it makes sense that um, you might go to greater lengths to do what you got to do. As mm-hmm. across races, um, so on top of dealing with the stresses of race, having to also deal with um, living in that type of environment. Can't, is not a is not a good combination, especially when you know that things could be different. There's something to be said about that being the only thing that you know, because there is the phenomenon of like your situation being normalized and like this is just the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. That creates more, I guess, resilience. But when you are confronted every day with the fact that like not everyone deals with this, like my life could be better, but because of this and this, like, I'm stuck here. That makes it 10 times worse. That makes it so much harder to bear. Yeah. Seeing seeing opportunities that you don't have access to, but someone else has mm-hmm. access to, because they, are, uh, they have the right cultural background, quote-unquote mm-hmm. right cultural background, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Years of being denied basic needs, you know, there's a I talked last week about a, a theory of psycho of therapy 
um, called general systems theory. There's another theory. You guys are going to hear this a lot from me because I, I just think about all these theories and how they apply to the black community. But there's another theory called reality um, therapy. And basically, it's, it has some remnants, re, uh, parallels with Maslow. Anybody who knows Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs. In this theory, there are five, there, uh, it's not called a hierarchy, it's just like five basic needs that humans have. And so it, it, the understanding from this theory is that um, all humans need um, love and a feeling of belonging, that's one. Power and accomplishment or accomplishment, that's two. Survival, that's three. Fun and relaxation, or relaxation, that's four. And freedom, that's the fifth one. And I believe the idea is that if, I think if at least two of these are not met, people begin to make poor choices. Or make choices, I should say, begin to make compromising choices or begin to make choices that are, that reap negative consequences or that aren't necessarily the most beneficial in the long run. So when I think about, the black experience or shared black experience, you know, in this country, how we have been denied so many of those basic needs for people like myself who have been in predominantly white spaces, that sense of belonging, not having that sense of belonging. Even if that's not your life, if you go to, uh, if you work at a place where you are the only black person, um, or if you go to school, where you're perpetually one of a handful of black people or maybe the only black person in your classroom, you can have that sense of not belonging somewhere. Or if you think about um, relaxation and fun, I mean, I think, I think we find ways to entertain ourselves and to, you know, stay Stay, you know, stay upbeat and, and find points of relaxation, but I think about people who are forced into positions where they have to work multiple jobs just to keep their head above the water. What time do you have to take a vacation to have the luxury of relaxation or of self-care? Um, if that's not something that you routinely practice and you don't feel like you are able to have a routine of practice. So that's mm -hmm. another need that's taken away. Um, power and accomplishment what that looks like for you. If you're even even if you were in the highest office, you look like President Obama, highest office in the country, and yet still face discrimination and racism, even with that amount of executive authority, to still have people question your humanity, question your citizenship, to to water down your power. That's a that's taking away of power. So that's another one. These are all examples of how black people have perpetually been taking these basic needs. You look at survival, being put in positions where we have to work two or three jobs or where we have to figure out ways of just surviving and being denied opportunity after opportunity after opportunity just to have basic needs. And then we look at freedom. That's something that we are fighting for on a regular basis, to have freedom. We think about our ancestors, how all of those needs were challenged 
or taken away. It is a miracle, divine intervention that we are here today. <laughs> when we think about all that our ancestors faced, all that we face on a regular basis, the fact if you woke up this morning and you are black, you are a miracle. Mm-hmm. You survived. It really is. It because really we is are defined. We are defined theory of psychology every day by our existence. According to that theory, yes. we should have been. We shouldn't be here. To be denied that. But you think about all of those choices when you have those those when you have those needs stripped from you, and then you are blamed and persecuted for making choices in compromising situations by people who aren't put in those same positions. I'm not excusing poor choices or bad behavior, but what I will do is is understand it and see that that okay I can see how that's reasonable how people make those choices you know and so that's why it's so important for us to make a collective effort mental health is is a great step but beyond that you have to understand that as mental health professionals we also work to advocate and if you are a mental health professional who is listening advocacy is such an important aspect of our work um, especially working with with black folks in the black mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, especially when so many of us have internalized a lot of the negative um, and racist ideas about ourselves. When I think of advocacy, I think about education. I think that's mm. part of the work of advocacy is educating, including psychoeducation. Mm. Mm-hmm. about how internalizing these negative concepts and these racist ideas can negatively impact our view of ourselves, our view of our, our people, and um, our emotional development. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Transgenerational trauma is a beast. Yeah. At times it feels unrelenting, but there are definitely things that we can do to combat it and to correct for it. I think in each generation, it's gotten the weight of it has gotten a little bit less, less and less. Because um, yeah. we have the the opportunity and the responsibility to shake off these shackles. We don't have to be defined by the trauma of our past, of our ancestors' past. Um, it's important to recognize the ways in which it is impacting us and the ways that we live our lives. Um, it impacts each of us at a different level in different ways, but we don't have to be bound by the generational trauma that we've experienced. We have the choice to confront it and do better. Yeah. What are some ways do you think that we can confront our trauma? So I'm thinking specifically about the family unit because Things outside of our control. I think you mentioned like policies and things that continue to, like, quote unquote, re traumatize us and remind us of the ways in which we're still seen as less than human in this country. But 
I'm thinking more in terms of the ways that we can pass on negative ways of dealing with our emotions or negative ways of seeing ourselves um, and internalizing some racist ideas. So in terms of confronting it, recognizing how we, what emotions we see as acceptable. Is it okay for me to be angry? Is it okay for me to be sad? Is it okay for me to express certain things? Do I see certain emotions as like not okay or uh, more dangerous than others? How do I treat my kids? Um, do I allow for them to express themselves um, like across the spectrum of emotional expressions or do I try to suppress certain feelings more than others? Um, and what's behind that? So those are the types of things I think of when I think of like confronting the ways that, the things that we have control over, things that have yeah. been passed down to us that we can change. Because there are certain things that are outside of our control um, that we can advocate for and protest against, but then there are things that we can actually have an immediate impact on. Yeah, that's good. So thinking more in your immediate family, what are some, like, parenting changes, things that you can do in, in modeling too, um, modeling certain behaviors um, mm-hmm. that are that are more... Um, What's the word? More healthy. Yeah, there we go. Smiling, healthier, (laughs) parenting behaviors. Um, A lot of times people aren't aware of certain habits and behaviors that they have that are unhealthy. Um, Yeah. But that's why it's important to be able to go to a professional, someone who's done research on on healthy parenting, someone who has experience mm-hmm. with working with parents and, and mm-hmm. building positive parenting styles and things that are, and, and styles that are more um, supportive to a healthier mm-hmm. uh, environment for your children. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why it's so important, I think, to, you know, to make those connections. So maybe go to a parenting mm-hmm. class or see a therapist or, or go to a parenting mm-hmm. group in order to build that skill set so that, you know, those certain behaviors don't get passed down and start to be able to acknowledge certain behaviors within yourself that you're modeling that you may not realize that your children are modeling after that aren't healthy. Stopping those, what we, you know, what, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's just church folk call uh, generational curses, you know, stopping those certain behaviors and those mindsets that have stunted growth in your family. Right. Right. Yes. Yes, and even confronting racist ideas in your family against our black people. Because yeah. I know black people are not a, immune to being racist towards each other and thinking less mm. of each other um, mm. because of whatever whatever internalized ideas that um, have shown up. But that's that I think I include that when I think of like confronting the ways that um, things that we've passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. Yeah, because I know some old black folks that are like, oh, these inwards are messing up and making us yeah. black people look bad. It's like, mm. or, or you could recognize the ways that um, we don't have to always live up to the white standard. I think a lot of times, especially the older black generation is um, trying to get our generation to to live up to certain white standards. And it's like, that's not, that's racist. Like, that's not the goal. Yeah. Or to gain their approval. 
Right. You know, mm-hmm. that that's the measure of, a, of success and accomplishment right. is that you catch the eye or the approval of a white person. Yeah. Um, we really don't need white people to celebrate us for us to survive right. and to be and to realize our value. We can do that within ourselves, mm-hmm. which is why I'm so glad to see, you know, I call it, I, I see it as a new renaissance um, in I don't even want to call it in Hollywood, but I would say in in media or in um, I guess you look at movies and television. So it's like we are celebrating, we are using our platforms to celebrate ourselves. And I think once we do that, that's when we can regain agency over our own narratives, gaining mm-hmm. agency over, in power over our own stories. Um, and representation increases. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of people in in new in the new wave of creativity are understanding that, you know, the way things have been trying to get you know white people to to see us hasn't really been working, and they're not getting it. We need to just create our own lane, and. Mm-hmm. And just do what we do best. We are creators. We've done this mm-hmm. before. <laughs> Without mm-hmm. white folks, we had a, a Black Wall Street. We had the Harlem Renaissance. We had all of these things that we've been able to be innovative on. Without the nod and approval mm-hmm. of white people, and I think that's something that we need to to realize that this isn't isn't something new, but that we can that we can create. We can see that as a template for and a motivation for for making our own platforms mm-hmm. um, outside of the approval of people who don't know our story or don't mm-hmm. care to hear our story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlene, I'm wondering, what would you say? I know we talked about parenting. What would you say to someone who isn't a parent? How would they be able to? combat or work in healing from transgenerational trauma? Someone who's not a parent to work against or to work to heal from transgenerational trauma? Yeah, because I know we talked about parenting and how, you know, on a on a more immediate scale, parents can model yeah. for their kids. But what would you say to someone who maybe doesn't have a parent who's modeled that for them or is modeling that for them? Um, is there hope? Oh, yeah. And I guess we should also combat that by saying not everyone necessarily experiences transgenerational trauma, or at least not to the same level. Just like with PTSD, not everyone who goes through a traumatic experience has symptoms, has like, it automatically develops PTSD. Um, there's a percentage of people that are trauma, that go through a traumatic experience that um, receive the diagnosis. And I think the same is true for transgenerational trauma. Um, I don't think all of us have been affected equally. So my first, if I were to have, like, this person as my client, we would first figure out, like, what ways have they been impacted? Um, So, for example, if they struggle with um, emotional suppression or, like, uh, this ever-present anger, then in terms of healing, we would figure that out, process that, figure out healthier ways to express um, feelings or just figure out ways to do it um, and ex- giving ourselves permission to do that, to be emotionally expressive, if that's, some, if that's the way that someone's been impacted. 
or if it's been more in terms of seeing ourselves as lesser than working through that, um, helping that individual, that teenager, challenge those racist ideas. Um, so it would depend on, like, what things are coming in with, what things are struggling with, because not everyone is impacted the same. Mm, okay. Okay. So I think the point that, that we've made so far is that transgenerational trauma is real uh, in our in our community, in the black community. And we are all affected to some degree by it, um, depending on, you know, our own personal stories and experiences kind of gives a little change to, or variation to how we experience it and how much we've experienced it. Um, but we can affirm that it is an experience that that most of us have. I don't know if there's anybody who's not been impacted at all. If so, I'd love to hear your story. <laughs> See where you where are you from, and can I go there? Um, mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so so that's that's kind of what I was was wanting to get a better understanding about um, in terms of you know presenting presenting an opportunity I should say for for people to know how to to manage the impact of transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's an important thing to think through it's so real for so many of us so much more that we could so much more but we have so many more episodes to dive into things more specifically so yeah i think we've um done enough for today (laughs) enough for today and done enough damage Uh, or enough healing we've done enough healing enough healing yeah (laughs) definitely way more appropriate And so we've been coming up with affirmations for each episode, but if you have an affirmation that you would like to share and that's been helpful for you, uh, we'd love to have you present that to us. We'd be happy to give you a shout out. If you prefer not to be known, we don't have to, but it's like, you know, for us to give you a shout out, we're more happy to, we would be more than happy to do that. Um, just check us out on Instagram. You can uh, DM or comment. I'm on Instagram. Our, our IG is at All Shades of Black Podcast. Or feel free to send an email at All Shades of Black Podcast at gmail.com. I'll check that out. Um, so, again, if you have an affirmation that's been working for you that you would like to share, feel free to connect with us on IG at All Shades of Black Podcast or via email at All Shades of Black Podcast at gmail.com. All right, so we'll get to our affirmation for today. So for today's affirmation, repeat after me. I am valuable. I am valuable. Because I am human. Because I am human. No one can take that away from me. No one can take that away from me. The end. Thank you so much for your love and support. Um, 
We will see you guys next time on All yes. Faith of Black Podcast. Yeah. As always, take care and be blessed.